Well, there are stories in the Bible that are disturbing, and this might be the most disturbing story in the Bible, which is why I think Christians have created like alternate versions of the flood story. Right, so one version of the flood story we have today is the Mother's Day version, right, where I grew up with Noah's Ark is like a children's story with cute, cuddly animals, smiling Noah, right? You go into the nursery, and it's like Noah's Ark in there. It's like, you know, it's, I just wonder what Noah would, would think of that. And I, like, I've done this to my own kids. Like, we have Noah, a bunch of little Noah's Ark stories that we read them. I could probably speak it to you by memory at this point, in walk the animals two by two, the long neck giraffe and the kangaroo. That's a song from one of the Noah. I know this, right? It's, it's a children's story. And even though it's Mother's Day, uh, and you think, like, should we tell a story about the mass death of humanity on Mother's Day? Probably not, but that's what we're doing. Um, I'm not going to tell you the Mother's Day version, although I, there's two Mother's Day connections. The first would be every mom at some point has thought, like, the flood story makes sense because I wanted to do that to my own household, right? It's like, just drive me crazy. The other, there's one more Mother's Day payoff, I promise you, later in this really disturbing story. Um, so there's the Mother's Day version, and that, listen, this just doesn't hold, right? If Noah, if Noah saw that, he'd be like, that's not what I saw. Then there's the, what I'll call the Jesus Duke version, which is, like, people will kind of have this perception that, you know, the God of the Old Testament was, like, kind of angry, had some issues, and uh, then he got, he got nicer, and then he sent Jesus, and Jesus is who we should focus on. Just ignore those Old Testament stories, because Jesus is who we should um, focus on. And this, uh, this week I, I saw a meme that kind of captured uh, this, which is Jesus holding a, a T-Rex and Jesus saying to the T-Rex, I'm sorry, T-Rex, the ark is full. <laughs> right, because Jesus would let all the dinosaurs in, right? And let's just to be clear, I'm not making a theological statement about the destruction of dinosaurs right now, right? It's a meme. Chill out, okay? Let's move on. Uh, but the idea is like, you know, just don't look at this. Look over here at Jesus instead. But that doesn't work because Jesus like quoted this story, affirmed that it happened, and when you see what he said about the story, you'll see that he is, he takes it as it is. He doesn't soften it in any way, shape, or form. And this is a, a dark story, and I, I think the painter Francis Danby best captured the mood of this Genesis story that, that the author of Genesis would want us to have, this dark perception. So what do we do with this story? And I just want to say, like, if we can just listen to the text, refuse to urge the story into something easier for ourselves, if we let God speak for himself, well, finally, God actually has something to say here. Which is why it's interesting. Noah, Noah does not speak a word in the entire flood narrative. He never speaks. It's not until after the flood that we get Noah's voice. Because Noah is not the, the main character of the story. God is the main character of the story, and he's trying to speak. So let's listen to what he says. And there's lots of things he says, but I want to narrow in kind of on three this morning. God speaks from this story to us, and the first thing he says, God says to us, is there is a limit to my patience. Now, there are a few stories in the Bible, and in particular in Genesis, where God like, sort of lets us into what he's thinking and feeling during the narrative. And you get that here in the flood story, what I read um, for you. They sort of, uh, the narrator like, intentionally like, walks you through what God is doing and thinking about in this, this process. And it starts in verse 5 when we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The key word there is that the Lord saw. He's looking. Right? Like he's intimately engaged his con- in, in his, his creation, in his world. He's looking out at the world in which he's made. And that's important because in this day, the ancient Near East culture, lots of, of nations had stories about how the gods flooded the earth. So if you had a history class, maybe you're familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's one example. But almost every culture had a story like this. And the Babylonian, uh, Babylonians had a story like this. And their story was that the Babylonian god Enlil could not get any sleep because human beings were so loud. Um, and so he's suffering from insomnia. And he gets so angry at the insomnia that he floods the earth to get some sleep, to get some quiet. Now, you saw my daughter a few minutes ago. She was sleeping uh, here at you know, 10, 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. She will not be sleeping 11 p.m. tonight when she should be sleeping. And so the Babylonian flood narrative to me, like, that makes sense, right? Like, God, the gods can't get any sleep. They get angry. They respond. Like, that's my life right now. Right? That's, that makes sense to me. But that's not the Hebrew narrative. The Hebrew narrative is God's looking for good. Like, he's looking for anything good. And all he sees is evil and corruption and violence. So the word saw, that's one. And then the net, verse 6 is really, this, this one gives theologians fit, fits. So the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That God regretted. Oh, what a statement. And we all, every one of us in this room, have regrets, right? But that's because we did something that we should not have done. We did something wrong. We said something we shouldn't have said. We did something we shouldn't have done. We responded in a way that we shouldn't respond. We all have regrets, but for like we regret the wrong things we do. God, who's never done anything wrong, but actually only like created this really good world to share with us, to fill it with animals, to give us a good, like to give us to share his joy with us. God only did something good, and he regrets that good thing. Because now he looks out at a world that was meant to be good, meant to be flourishing with joy. And it's only filled with evil and corruption. So God regrets, and then we're told he grieved in his heart. And the Hebrew word, this Hebrew word elsewhere is used of a widow grieving for her dead husband. And I realize that raises all sorts of theological questions. How can God regret? How can God grieve? He's, he's God. And I, I just like, I don't want to, there's lots of interesting discussions when you go down that road. I don't want to. The, like the Hebrew text is just trying to say, this is, God, this is what God's experiencing. In this moment, he's not angry. He's not flying off the handle. He's not this vindictive judge. He's a grieved widow who is looking over a world that's supposed to be full of life and instead is full of death and evil and injustice. All his good intentions, his desires to live in community with us, all of those gone. And it's so bad, the only way to get it back is for God to start over, to to remove human beings from the earth and to start over with Noah and his family. And if that's troubling to you, good, you're, you're paying attention. It's supposed to be. And it, it, it raises the question, how did it get this bad? Like, what is going on here that's so bad that God thinks he has to completely, he has to do something he won't do in the rest of the scriptures. He has to start over. What's going on? And what's hard is we're actually told that. We're told what's going on, what's so evil in the first four verses of Genesis 6, and they are just, they are some of the weirdest, strangest, most confusing verses in all of the Bible. 
And so I'm going to go there for a minute and then get right back out, hopefully, before you get uh, too weirded out. But it's important because I don't think the flood is just like human beings are, are a little sinful and God's fed up. There's actually something unique happening here. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4, tell us. I'm going to read the first two verses and try to give a real quick explanation of what might be happening. So Genesis 6, 1 through 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the real question is, like, who are the sons of God? And there's two ways that Christians have understood this passage. One is that the sons of God, they're like human kings, and human kings begin to uh, coalesce power together. They grab women, they enter into, like, polygamous relationships, so they become abusers and, and, and unjust, and they multiply their evil in the world as, in such a way that, like, there's just like wicked kings ruling all over the world. That's sort of one way of understanding this. So it's not just normal evil. It's, it's, it's unique complicity amongst human kings who are ruling together in evil. The other uh, possible translation is that the sons of God are actually angelic beings and that Genesis 6 is the fall of angels and demons. Like that's the story you're getting in Genesis 6. And so what happens is when the sons of God uh, marry the daughters of men, what's actually happening is, is spiritual beings are transgressing their limits and, and, and falling away from God's uh, commands and, and, and his, uh, his way of being. And, and, and that's why what's interesting is the language of Genesis 6 is very interesting to Genesis 3, where in Genesis 3, Eve uh, sees the fruit is attractive and then takes it. You have the same language here. The sons of God see the daughters of men are attractive and they take them. Um, so it's similar language. But, but listen, it's all weird. I get it. You're completely weirded out right now. And that's okay. But the, like it's it's the fall of the angelic world. That's, that's one way of reading Genesis 6. And here's the point. Here's what matters. However we understand those, those verses, the point is there's a unique level of evil happening here, a coordination, a complicity amongst power structures, whether they be supernatural or just natural, of the day to ruin God's good creation. And God is saying, enough. I'm not going to let you do this to my world. My limits of patience have been exhausted. So as we think about the story, um, there's three questions, I think, meditate, like when we meditate on this, three questions we need to ask ourselves about like a God of judgment who would say, there's a limit to my patience. And the first question, I think we need to start here, which is what is God's patience compared to my patience? Because <clears throat> I think a lot of us would read this story and think, God, you know, God seems like he is not a very patient being, and he's ready to react in judgment and anger just like that. Um, and yet, that's not typically the complaint made against God in the Bible. Typically, people look at God and say, you're too patient. Your limits of grace are too high. So if you read through the Psalms, the, the most common question in the Psalms is how long? Right? It's people looking at God saying, look at, this, look at these wicked people, the thieves, murderers, unjust kings. How long are they going to get to do what they want and you let them do what they want? God? Like, how long does evil get to reign? That's the most common question in the Psalms. God, isn't your patience exhausted yet? It's what Jonah says to God when he, God tells Jonah to go preach to the city of Nineveh, a city Jonah didn't like, and Jonah doesn't go to preach. And he tells God why he doesn't go to preach. And he says, God, I didn't go preach there because I knew you were a God who is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Right? I knew, God, I knew your patience is here, mine is here, and I wasn't going to do that. 
And then even you go into the New Testament, Jesus hung with sinners and people who had bad reputations. And a lot of religious leaders looked at Jesus and thought he was disqualified because of his patience and his grace towards sinners. And so I think it's just important to start, like you could read the Bible for five minutes and be like, God seems like he's really angry, you know, and very judgmental. And yet, like read the whole story. Like I said, I think there's something uniquely evil happening, which is why God responds the way he does in Genesis 6. And if you read the rest of the, the Bible, you find most people are angry God is as patient as he is. Not that he's not patient enough. So question one, what, what's God's patience compared to mine? Um, but secondly, why, like, I think we all struggle with the idea of judgment. So why is that? Why do we struggle with the idea of judgment? And for Americans in particular, the idea that God would condemn someone is really problematic. But for much of the world, it's not. In fact, for much of the world, if you don't believe in a God of judgment, you have bigger problems on your hand. And so Miroslav Wolf, a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale, he writes on this. In Croatia, his own experience was genocide, civil war, injustice, murder. And so he, he saw this in his own context. He comes to the United States to teach, and he wrote this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Since violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry in injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. What he's saying is, if you, and this is where we live, if you live in the suburbs, it's easy to say that judgment is problematic. If you live in the real world of of violence and injustice and genocide, then it's, you're actually, you know, you need, God should respond to this. And whether we agree with this or not, or we like it or not, in Genesis 6, God is, there's a level of evil that God is is saying, enough. And I'm going to respond. So those are important questions. What, like, why do we struggle with judgment to begin with? What is God's patience compared to my patience? But the most important question the flood narrative asks of us is, has God's patience reached its limit with me? If the flood narrative makes clear, God is giving people what they want. The verses 11 and 12, they're, they're really interesting in the Hebrew, and, and a scholar, Hebrew scholar Victor Hamilton commentating on this uh, text uh, said he would translate it a little bit differently um, because of the, the intentionality of the Hebrew here, which is sort of to show that people wanted something and God just gave it to them. And so here's how he said he would translate these verses. Uh, gone to ruin was the earth. Indeed, it had gone to ruin. All flesh had ruined its way. So God said, I will ruin them. In the ESV, it's the word corrupt, right? There's corruption, corruption, corruption. And then the phrase in verse, uh, the end of verse 13, I will destroy them. But it's all the same word in the Hebrew. It's, it's one word. And what Hamilton points out is that what God's doing is, is pointing out that they want ruin. They want corruption. And so God is just going to speed up what they want and give it to them faster. They want to be ruined. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want, but I'm, I'm going to make it happen faster than what you can do on your own. And so any life outside of a life with God ultimately leads towards, towards ruin. And if that's what you want, God in the end will give that 
to you. And so the flood narrative is really asking the question, what is it that you want? Do you, actually, do you want life with God? Do you want to know Him? Because if you want you first, if you want your own life first, God will give that to you in ruin, in corruption. Like, that's where it all leads. And eventually, God will say, enough. I'm cutting you off. No more. Or you can have life with God. And God's the first message He communicates to us through the flood is, there's a limit to my patience. A moment when I say, if you don't want me, if you don't want life with me, you're going to have it. That's point one. It's, that's happy Mother's Day, right? That's point one. Point two is the second thing God says, and doesn't just say in this narrative, but throughout the scriptures, is God says to us, I will always provide an ark. There's always a limit to his patience, but there's always an ark. And this is where we get to verse eight, where we read, Noah found favor with the Lord. And we ask, like, why? Why does Noah find favor with the Lord? And the answer to that, like, we don't really know. He just does. And so Noah, like his story actually becomes a really powerful, I think, picture of how salvation works, which is that when you enter into life with God, you just find yourself like struck by his grace, his kindness, his mercy. You have no idea why, but it's there. And yet like life with God, it doesn't stop there. It then has to move its way into to obedience, to walking with him, to knowing him. Noah has to respond. He has to actually get on the ark. He actually, actually he has to build the ark. And so if, if, you, if you look at the, the progression of like the Genesis narrative, there's a really important theme which comes out, which starts in Genesis 3. In, in, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, they sin, we're told that God, he went walking in the cool of the garden, but Adam and Eve were hiding from him. In other words, like God wanted to go on a walk with them, and they were hiding from God. And you get this clear sense of, a life of salvation or a life of judgment? Hiding from God or walking with God? And then you fast forward a couple chapters to Genesis 5. We didn't, we didn't read that, that or preach from that chapter because it's, it's not very interesting. Um, all it is is basically this guy lived and he died. And this guy lived and he died. And then this guy lived and he died. It's like for like 30 verses. That's what it is. Um, and then you get to Enoch. And what you read about this guy named Enoch is Enoch didn't die. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. And then you fast forward to the Noah narrative, and you find Noah found favor with the Lord, and Noah walked with God. So what does that mean, to walk with God? Right, Because we all want to get on the ark, and yet uh, to get on the ark, you have to walk to be the kind of person that walked with God. And, and there's lots of ways the Hebrew Bible unpacks this idea, but there's two front and center in, in Noah's story. If you want to walk with God, these two things will be true of you. The first is, is unwavering obedience. The commentators point out, like Noah's obedience to God through the story is he never, he doesn't, he doesn't question God. God tells him, build a wall this high, build the boat like this, pull the animals in like this. Like Noah does everything obediently to God, which is why Noah does not speak in this narrative. His speech, his actions, it's his obedience to God. And if you want to walk with God, it requires unwavering obedience unwavering obedience, which obedience in our day today is a, is a dirty word. Obedience reeks of being disempowered, being weak, being a slave, not being free. That we, we tend to view obedience through like the prism of 
rules. And like we have rules, we can follow them, we cannot follow them. God gave us rules we can follow or we cannot follow. But that's not how the narrative presents walking with God, obedience to God. Obedience with God, it's, it's not about like keeping rules. It's about like trusting the voice of God and walking with Him in life, becoming a certain kind of person. Trusting God is leading you towards salvation and restoration and new life and knowing His voice is the only voice that can lead you there, which is why we listen to it. Right? We don't walk with God to keep His rules. We walk with God to become the kind of person that doesn't ruin the earth, but, but brings joy and brings flourishing to it. And we don't think, our culture does not think of obedience like that. And so I like the way John Orberg talks about obedience. He says this, Obedience is a far more creative, proactive, grace-powered, intelligent way of life than is normally thought in our day. The obedience Jesus called for requires judgment, discernment, creativity, and initiative. It's about becoming an excellent person, not an excellent rule follower. And you see this like in Noah's life. Noah is obedient to God. And what does he do? He literally saves the world. He builds the boats, loads all of creation onto the boats, saves it, and then the earth can be reborn through Noah's obedience. That is not a weak, slavish, like just, uh, you know, disembodied experience. Like that's a free, like grace-powered life that is bringing flourishing to those around him. But it starts with obedience to God. And so the reason we do what God says is not because we want to keep his rules, but because we want to enter into that life, a life of salvation and joy, not ruin and corruption. And what that also means when we disobey God, when we do things he tells us not to do, we're not breaking a rule, right? We're not driving 40 in a 35. It's like if you see some kids slow down, right? It's like, that's not what we're doing. What we're actually doing is we're saying to God, I know how to bring flourishing into my life. You don't. I don't want to get on your ark. I want to live over here. I don't want to walk with you. I'm, over, I'm going to hide. Disobedience is hiding from God. Obedience is walking with God. So how's your obedience? Are you walking with him? Walking with God is unwavering obedience, but it's also, it's trusting a provision. Rather, Noah has to trust that when God told him to build a boat in the middle of nowhere, that it was actually going to rain, and the boat would actually do what God said that it would do, that it would save him. Which is just a, like, this is how God's going to save Noah, is you got to build a boat, and you got to get in it. He has to trust that provision. And, and I love, there's this powerful moment where Noah, he builds the ark. And the boat's finished. The animals are on, but there's no rain, right? And here at verse 16, I love this language. Uh, and those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shuts Noah in. Right? Here's, Noah's trusting God's provision, and the Lord shuts Noah in. The image of shutting someone in is... is like a mother tucking their child into bed at night. Safety, security, provision, concern. That's your Mother's Day connection, right? You just got it. Right? It's tucking her. It's safety. It's, it's I'm watching over you. I haven't forgotten you. Noah has to trust the provision of God. And so the flood narrative ultimately puts two options in front of us, which is walk with God and have him shut you into the ark and know him in salvation or hide from him in disobedience and meet him in the flood. That you will either meet God in the ark in salvation, or you will meet him in the flood in judgment. 
And if you're like, that's really intense. That's actually, that's exactly what Jesus said about this story. Like Jesus doesn't say, you know, God back then was kind of mean. Not anymore. No, Jesus says, the thing that happened in the flood is going to happen again with me. And here's how he takes the flood narrative and brings it into his own life. It's in Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Or the image is one man will meet God in the ark, will walk with him, will know him in salvation, and one will meet him in the flood in judgment and be swept away. So the question for where will you meet him? And it's like, we're all like, well, yeah, I'll meet him in the ark. That's easy, right? It's like, that's where I'm going to meet God in the ark. But that's, that's what's tough is, is to meet him in the ark means you want to obey him. You want to know him. You want to walk with him. And that's the question is, do we want to obey him? Do we want to walk with him? Does the ark even make sense? I think of it like, like this. I was, uh, <clears throat> before I came to Kansas City, I was in a church in Chicago in uh, there was someone who became a part of our, our community group during that time uh, sort of just really began to like just grow spiritually and was, was doing really well and seeming to like really just really take off and, and, and become uh, more of a Jesus follower. And she got to this point where she wanted to be baptized and, and asked to be baptized. And we were excited, of course, yes. Um, and then uh, we sort of found out that, that she was making a decision in her life that was an explicit, like the Bible says don't do this, she was going to do that. And so the first thing we did, it's like a lot of times, and I think it's important just, if you're a Christian, you know the Bible, like a lot of times people don't know the commands in the Bible, so you, like that's why we need to be gracious. So we sat down with her and said, you know, you're making this decision, the Bible says this, um, it would lead you in a different direction. And we sort of had that conversation. And what became clear in that conversation was, even though the Bible was clear, uh, she was not going to do that. She was going to do what she wanted to do and was going to ignore the the command in the scriptures. And so me and the lead pastor, we were left in this weird spot of, do you, can we baptize her? Because on the one, like, salvation is grace, right? We don't earn salvation through our effort, right? That's the, central to the gospel, is you don't earn your own salvation. And yet, if you explicitly want to disobey Jesus, like, do you want to be saved? <laughs> is baptism even a meaningful event if you're explicitly saying, I'm not going to do the thing that Jesus asked me to do. And I listen, all of you, we're all feeling tension right now. And to be clear, it wasn't an addiction thing. It wasn't like, I want to obey. I just can't. I'm, I'm going to fall. Help me. It was, I'm not going to obey that teaching. And I put, like, I put that story forward because I think we, like, for me, it highlights what the flood is showing, which is not, like, we all want to get on the ark, right? We all want to go to heaven, but we don't all want to walk with God. And obey him and trust him and, and, and lean in his provision. And when he tells us to go a direction we don't think will work, we don't think is best, we go anyway because we trust his voice and we want to know him and to walk with him. And that's why, listen, it was a, it was a, it's one of those moments of pastoral ministry, like I don't know what the right thing to do is, but we, just, we said we don't think baptism makes sense for you right now because you don't, you don't actually want to follow into the way of Jesus. Saying salvation is of grace, like we don't, 
We don't know that, but we, what we know is baptism doesn't make sense for someone who doesn't want to follow the teachings and obey the teachings of Jesus. And that, I just want to put that question to me and to all of us this morning, which do, do you actually want to obey God? Like whatever he says, do you want to walk with him and know him in all things? Because there's always an ark. There's always a way of, an, of, an, of escape. But the ark only makes sense if you want to walk with God. And, and the ark only makes sense if you want the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, is us saying to God, I want it to be done on earth or on earth as it is in heaven. I want your way to reign in all things, which means obedience, like trust. When he says to do something, I will do it. And in our American context, a lot of times, like we, salvation is just grace, right? It's, I'm going to heaven. I can do what I want, and God will forgive me. And there's this tension in the flood narrative, which is, Noah found favor with God, grace, merit. None of it deserved. But then he has to go and walk in obedience and build the ark, let the Lord shut him in, and trust God to save him through it. And so hopefully, like, you feel that tension. Right? There's a tension here between how can God be, there's a limit to my patience, judge. And also say, but there's always an ark, get in it, trust me, walk with me. How can both be, be true? And the, the tension's resolved in the way the flood narrative ends, which is the third thing. If God says anything to this narrative, he says, I will remember. All right, so the flood happens, uh, Noah's in the boats. And then we read these words in Genesis 8, chapter 1. It says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, in our English, like reading that, it can sound almost like God's up in heaven and he's like, oh, wait, Noah's down there. I forgot about him. And I remember, there he is. Let's get up. But in the Hebrew, to remember is for God to save someone's life. When God remembers someone, it's always to interact to save their life. He remembers Abraham and intervenes to save his life. He remembers Rachel. When Rachel was unable to have a child, he intervenes to, to, to save her from her own despair. When God remembers someone, he is acting to save them. And the Bible makes clear God always remembers his promises. And he remembers Noah there in the, the ark, and he brings him out safely. And then God makes a promise to Noah. And to us today, this promise holds true to us today, that he will never again act in the sweeping judgment he acted in the flood there. He'll never do this again. And he gave Noah and he gave to us a sign of that promise, a rainbow. Right? And we saw that sign a couple of weeks ago in the double rainbow that was over Kansas City. Right? It was so beautiful. Our neighbors like, came over to our house and knocked on the door to make sure that we saw it. Right? It was like Instagrammed. It was over-Instagrammed. Right? It, was, it was just overgrammed. Is that? I don't know. Anyway, that's... Everyone was, was like posting photos. This is like this amazing, beautiful moment. And it's all a promise of God to us saying, I will, I will remember you. I remember my promises. And Hebrew scholars have pointed out, like it's, this, this image is very interesting because the, the Hebrew word in the Bible is, is a bow and the bow is a, it's a weapon of war. Right? It's, a ju- it's a judgment weapon. It's, it's you destroy with the bow and... And the, the bow that's given to us as an image, this rainbow, um, the arrow is not trained down towards us in judgment. It's pointed up, right, towards, towards God, that God is training the arrow on himself. 
And it's what, it's what makes this story so interesting to me, that on the one hand, you have a God who has a limit to judgment, a limit to his patience. When he, like, he'll finally, that's like, this is enough. No more evil. I'm not going to let this persist. And on the other hand, he always provides an ark. For human beings, there's always a way of escape, a way of salvation, a way of getting out of the judgment. Anyone on the ark can be saved. And I re- like, how can that be? Because, well, there's one person who, who was not offered the ark. Right? There's one human being who, uh, through his unwavering obedience, through his complete trust in the Father's provision, was not welcomed onto the ark, was not shut into the ark, was shut out of the ark. One human being who, despite his unwavering obedience to his own Father, was not remembered on the cross, but cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? One who met God in judgment, who met him in the flood, even though he, was, he did no evil. He didn't ruin anything. He, there was no corruption in him. That one human being, Jesus, who says to us, Come to me. Take up life with me. Walk with me. I will lead you into a life of salvation. I will remember you, which makes our disobedience and our rebellion against God, our wanting to hide from him and not walk with him even more ridiculous. Because how in the world do we find a joy that he doesn't already have inherent to himself? What kind of life are we going to find that he doesn't have, that he's freely giving to us through his own sacrifice? Why would I want to go my own way when this son of God is providing a life of grace and salvation in an ark? That in the end, we can have our lives as we want it. And it always leads to ruin. It may take decades. It may take hundreds of years. You'll get there. And God at some point will say, okay, that's, you get that. You can have ruin or you can have the God who pointed the bow at himself. Right? Who was shut out of the ark so that you could be shut in. Who was forgotten so that you could be remembered so that you could have salvation and new life. Don't hide from that God. Walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we come now to walk with you in obedience and trust. And as we, as we open your word and as we read, what is a hard story? No doubt, God, there's probably one or two reactions. Either we, we see our own, our own guilt, our own corruption, and we think there's no way you could want to know us. And yet, God, the, ark, the flood story says that's not true. You provide an ark. Jesus gave his life for us. For those who feel discouraged, that you would, you would leave them. God, shower your favor, your mercy on them. But then there's some of us, God, who we don't think that there's any judgment for us. And we're living how we want. We want we're walking how we want. Um, and we're presuming on your grace and your patience may be running out. And for those of us in the room who are there, God, would you make your judgment real to us so that we could see the even greater nature of your grace. Spirit, you have to do that work. We can't do it as a church. You have to do it, Spirit. So do it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.